One for the Road by Michael Whitehouse. I woke to my friend Tom climbing through my window. It was a summer's night around 2 a.m. and the heat had been unbearable for days. For that reason, I had left my window open slightly to let what cool air there was filter into my bedroom while I slept. It was a scrambling, panicked noise which brought me to consciousness and immediately I thought someone was breaking into my home. In the darkness, I couldn't tell who it was, but as soon as I heard, help me, I recognized my friend's voice. After turning on the light, I pulled Tom into the room and sat him down in my old brown armchair, which had seen better days. Close the window, he seethed, half shout, half whisper, and completely occupied by the nighttime scene outside. Switch the light off. Why, I asked, confused and still half dazed. It might see us. That word, it, sat in my mind, distilled and unerring. I would have laughed if Tom hadn't had such an unsettling look on his face. I'd never known him to be spooked by anything, and to see him so visibly shaken took me by surprise and filled me with trepidation. I switched off the light and my eyes adapted once more to the dark. Tom sat there with his head in his hands, the room lit dimly by the streetlights outside, filtering through the blinds. "'What's going on?' I said. "'You won't believe me.' He looked up at me, even in the low light, I could see the sweat running down his temple. Tom, whatever it is, it's okay. No, you don't understand. Try me, I said, and with that he relayed his story in a hushed, wavering voice. Tom had been out that night, no surprise really, as he always enjoyed a drink. In fact, he enjoyed it too much, and his behavior of late had been erratic at best, self-destructive at worst. He'd been at the Windham Lodge, a small old man's pub near the town main street, I knew why he'd been there before he even told me. His ex-girlfriend Shelly worked there behind the bar. A month earlier, she had broken up with him. She just couldn't take his drinking anymore. That night, Tom had dragged a mutual friend of ours, Greg, to the lodge under the guise of a couple of games of pool and just one drink. Come midnight, as the pub closed, Tom had to be dragged from the bar by the manager and thrown out into the street. He'd been pleading with Shelly to have a drink with him when she finished her shift. When his simple question turned into a bitter demand, he was quickly ejected. I knew what Tom was like when he had a drink in him, which was one of the reasons I'd refused to go out with him that night. He'd been increasingly argumentative and unpleasant. The breakup with Shelly had made him even worse. We were all trying to help him as best we could. I'm not painting a great picture of him, but when he was sober, he was a thoughtful and caring person, and a good friend. After staggering down a couple of streets and lanes, Tom produced a hip flask filled with whiskey, which he carried in his pocket, and asked Greg to join him for a few more drinks on the way home. Greg refused, no doubt already having had his fill, and so it wasn't long before an argument broke out. Greg was just trying to help Tom up the road, but instead received drunken insults, Tom throwing around words he'd regret in the morning. After a few minutes of a verbal bashing, Greg gave up and made his own way home. Tom staggered along the road and cursed Shelly, Greg, and the rest of the world for refusing to have another drink with him. There was nothing else for it but for Tom to drink alone. As he wandered along an empty street not far from where I lived, the rain came on. 
slight at first, then torrential. So heavy was the downpour, in fact, that he was forced to take shelter and wait for it to pass. It just so happened that the street he was on, Serling Street, had its fair share of abandoned buildings, having once housed the workers of a now-defunct factory. One house in particular had an old porch which encased the front doorway on either side and had a pointed roof which provided just enough shelter for one drunken 20-something during a downpour. Tom climbed a small fence and staggered across the weed-filled garden to the front door. I say the front door, but in reality it had long since been broken in, no doubt rotting somewhere inside the house alongside unseen floorboards, roof beams, and memories. No matter how drunk my friend was, he had no intention of exploring inside. He just wanted somewhere to stay dry, and the porch would provide enough protection for that. And so he sat on the front step, angry and embittered, the rain, for the most part, being rebuffed by the porch roof above. He waited there a while, looking out across the overgrown garden to the street beyond, the rain dancing off the tarmac. It seemed clear to Tom that he was going to be there for a while longer, and so, if all else fails, drink. There he sat, taking increasingly longer slugs from the hip flask. It filled with cheap whiskey, and Tom filled with anger at the world, at Shelley, at Greg, and everyone else who didn't understand. Now, Tom had a habit common to heavy drinkers. When he would get to the precipice and intoxicate most of his sober mind, he started to talk to himself. And that night, after the pub and a good portion of the hip flask, he began a conversation. He cursed his friends and family, his situation. He called Shelley a whore, and beyond all else, he hated those around him for being so perfect and lecturing him on how to live his life. At least the drink wouldn't turn its back on him. That was something he always said he could rely on. The rain hadn't abated, falling with the same ferocity as it had from the start, Tom's words swallowed up by the white noise which blanketed everything around him. Finally, after another slug of whiskey, he slumped against the cold, rotting porch frame, closed his eyes, and began to drift off to a drunken sleep. As he did so, he mumbled once more about Greg and Shelley's refusal to join him, that it was just one drink for the road. It was then that Tom felt a drip of rain make its way through a crack above onto his forehead, and at the same time, the weight of something uncomfortable prodding into his shoulder. As he opened his eyes, he felt a warm, humid breeze flutter across his face, arid and stale, far removed from the air around him, which pulsated with each sheet of rain. "'I'll drink with you,' a graveled voice breathed into Tom's ear." He turned, startled and horrified by those words, only to be confronted by an unnatural, aberrant face which rested its pointed chin on his shoulder, its body poking out from the darkened doorway behind. The face was covered in dirt and grime, as if it had spent decades beneath the earth, and had the shrouded appearance of ivory cloth pulled tightly over a withered frame, implying skeletal features beneath and showing every movement of jaw and bone. There are some sights which will sober even the most inebriated drunk, and this was one of them. Tom dived forward, falling onto a slabbed garden path thinly concealed by weeds and soil. He screamed at the top of his voice, only to be drowned out by the torrential rain, its million voices engulfing his forsaken one. Clawing at the ground, he rushed to his feet and leapt over the garden fence into the street, then on, on into the rain, into the night, away from that house, from whatever thing had been disturbed there. 
Blood coursed through his veins as he fled, and his head began to ache excruciatingly from a potent cocktail of fear and alcohol. Gasping for breath, he stopped for a moment, now far away from the house at the other end of the street. He turned to look back, but it was difficult to see the rain hurling itself into his eyes with such force that the scenery was blurred and indistinct. Slowly, he calmed and entered into a sober dialogue with himself about having drank too much and just seeing things. It was then that through the bubbling wall of rain, he saw something move. A figure, shrouded in darkness and cloth, climbed over the fence in pursuit. Tom wiped his eyes in disbelief as it began to run towards him at speed. Panic, absolute and controlling. Tom turned, screaming, no one able to hear his pleas for help. He kept running. He left Serling Street behind, and yet at every turn the shrouded thing from the house followed. Finally, he made it to the street where I live and clambered through the window, hoping to be saved. I stood there in silence. He seemed so upset, so certain, that he even had me believing his story for a moment. But then what I saw as the truth presented itself. Tom, I said gently, you're bone dry. What? No, I'm... He stopped as he ran his hands over his clothes and then his hair. There hasn't been a drop of rain in weeks and tonight has been just as still as the others. But he hesitated for a moment, shaking his head and rubbing his mouth with his hand. No, I'm telling you, this happened. That thing is real. Tom... You've been drinking too much, and you probably fell asleep, and in a daze, you made it here. I placed my hand on his shoulder to reassure him, Please, let's get you home. Give me a minute to change my clothes, and I'll walk you there. As I moved across the room, Tom pulled out his whiskey flask and took a big slug. Maybe you're right. I just need to sleep it off. I turned to put the light on, but before I had the chance to, Tom let out an almighty scream. I have genuinely never heard anything like it. Utter fear, complete and distraught. He leapt to his feet, opened my window in hysteria, and then fled into the night. Two months passed, and myself, Greg, Shelley, and our other friends who cared about Tom were unable to contact him. Indeed, the only reason I knew he was alive and not drowned in a river somewhere was because his brother assured me he had spoken to him. Finally, one day, Tom appeared at my front door, looking in as good a shape as I had seen him in a long time. He claimed that he had, in fact, went through an alcohol rehabilitation program, which, while he still struggled with an urge to drink, had kept him sober for several weeks. He said that the tipping point, his lowest ebb, had been that night, when he hallucinated that thing into being on Serling Street. Indeed, he said that for weeks, whenever he had a drink near him, the figure would appear from the darkness, following, chasing, never relenting. In the end, more than anything else, it was the fear of a mental illness taking hold and seeing that hallucination again, which made him stop drinking. I was and am so happy for Tom and would hate to do anything to change his interpretation of the events. Doing so could perhaps undo his rehabilitation. I'm sure he's right about the whole thing being a hallucination. That seems like the reasonable and obvious conclusion to have. But I often lie in bed, kept awake by an uneasy memory, unsure whether to trust my own senses. For when Tom jumped back out of the window into the night, I saw something follow him from the corner of the room. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories. A paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, 
wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Special thanks to Michael Whitehouse for writing this story and allowing me to read it for my first scary story reading. Sniff by Michael Whitehouse. Let me tell you all a story. It's one which I think is interesting, but at the same time, frustrating for me. You see, it's not mine, and for that reason, I can't develop it myself or adapt it into a complete tale. It's supposedly an experience someone actually had, but the account seems so well-rounded that I'm suspicious of it. I have a niggling feeling that it might come from something already published. I detest plagiarism in any form, and for that reason I'd hate to take the account, build upon it, then later discover I had taken something from another writer. There's also the possibility that it is an urban myth or legend that I'm unaware of. But the truth is, the story bothers me. I really would like to know if anyone here has actually heard of it. I'll do my best to relate it to you now. Is it just a published story, or based on a genuine experience? Many years ago, my dad had a drinking buddy who was also a schoolteacher. They knew each other well and would often catch up over a few pints, discussing everything from work to politics to almost anything you could think of. The usual pub banter. One night, one specific conversation they had together always stuck in my dad's mind. It was a quiet midweek evening, and their local was quite empty, with just a few of the regulars propping up the bar. As they sat there, the conversation ebbed and flowed between the drinkers and the staff, eventually landing on the topic of ghosts. More specifically, did they exist, and had anyone there ever seen one? Of course, as these things go, they all took turns describing strange supernatural occurrences, things that go bump in the night. All of the stories were the same in that they were second-hand in nature. The accounts were of friends, family, and acquaintances who had encountered the paranormal, but no one there could claim to have seen a ghost themselves, no one but for the schoolteacher. The story he told my dad and the others there that day was that he had been privy to something quite frightening a few years earlier. In a suburb of Glasgow called Govanhill, he had an aunt. The man was caught between moves and needed somewhere to sleep for a few nights, and so she happily took him in. It was a small flat with only one bedroom, but there was a sofa bed in the lounge which was not entirely uncomfortable and would at least provide him with somewhere to rest before sorting out his living arrangements. After a nice meal and some polite conversation, the schoolteacher's aunt went to her room for an early night. He was tired and hoped to get to sleep soon enough as well and, after pulling out the sofa bed, switched off the lights and closed his eyes. Quickly, he fell asleep. He awoke to darkness. It was still the middle of the night, and he wondered why he had stirred, considering he was usually a heavy sleeper and rarely woke before the morning. 
Then he heard it. A noise. There was definitely something in the room with him. The sound was unusual, but not unidentifiable. It was not unlike someone breathing, quickly followed by a sharp inhalation which the school teacher could only describe as a sniffing sound. Readying himself to get out of bed, turn on the light, and see what was causing the unusual noise, his eyes now adapted to the pitch black. While no details could be seen, the breathing and sniffing noises began to edge closer to him. He was now convinced that there was something unwelcome in the room with him, and by the shuffling noise which now accompanied it, he was certain it was substantial. Of course, he was panicked. Part of him wanted to rush into his aunt's room and barricade the door. Another part preferred to stay still and not disturb whoever was there. Perhaps they had a knife. The thought of some burglar stumbling around in the dark with a blade only made him more apprehensive. He decided that he would lay there quietly and bide his time. Maybe the housebreaker would just take something and leave without altercation. But then, what of his aunt? Had she been hurt? Then a warm, moist breath blew across his face as someone leaned over him. Trembling, he reached out his hand instinctively, touching something cold and damp, hovering only inches away. Leaping out of bed in horror, he knocked over a table as he made his way to the door, tripping clumsily and landing on the floor with a painful thud. The school teacher's aunt found him in the hallway, dazed, yelling for her to get out of the flat. She seemed strangely unafraid, and after switching on all the lights, showed him that the place was quite empty, including where he had slept. Calming his nerves with a drink and a snack, she sat him down and explained what she believed had happened. The story goes, and this part I know to be true, that underneath Govenhill, and therefore his aunt's flat, there once lay a large network of prosperous and important mines in the 19th and early 20th centuries. While they had been the site of many unfortunate cave-ins, gas leaks, and accidents, the aunt was convinced that she had often heard in that room the noises of those who had lost their lives down there. While she had never experienced anything quite as potent as the schoolteacher, who was visibly shaken, she was more concerned about the poor apparition of an old pit mule trapped in darkness, trying to sniff its way out from that suffocating place with only its cold, damp nose to guide it. Special thanks to Michael Whitehouse for writing and allowing me to read this story. Immortal by Vincent V. Cava What you seek is just beyond this door, young man. Young man. No one had called David Young in a decade. Those were words that harkened back to a simpler time for him, before his obsession with immortality began to consume his life. Before he had wasted his physical prime locked away in his den, poring through archaic texts and studying ancient hymns, before he devoted his life to investigating the validity of age-old legends from bygone cultures around the world. 
From the philosopher's stone to the fountain of youth, David had researched tales of eternal life stemming out of every corner of the globe. He had even focused his efforts on more obscure, lesser-known lore, like the Owanu frog of Ghana's Sisala tribe and the disturbing story out of Sloon, Croatia, that had come to be known regionally as the Night of the Star Child. It wasn't until he reached his mid-forties that he was able to piece together a trail of evidence that gave his quest direction. He had begun to recognize patterns throughout his studies of history, tiny consistencies buried in long-forgotten writings, reoccurring symbols carved into time-worn relics, peculiar regularities that had no right turning up in the places and times that they did. And after more than two decades, all of his findings had led him to one place, a lone monastery sitting atop an icy mountain in eastern Tibet. David had braved the conditions in order to speak to the wise holy men he believed held the secret he had spent most of his adult life searching for. But when he arrived, he found the temple mostly empty, save for one old monk with tired eyes. Pangs of disappointment surged inside the gut of the frustrated traveler when he first laid eyes on the elderly hermit. After all, he had come so far and been so sure that the monastery housed the key to his deepest desire, but the deep age lines in the old monk's face told him a different story. It told the story of muscle atrophy, the story of cognizance withering away, of bones becoming brittle. The old monk's face told the story of aging, the story of impending, unstoppable death. With a pair of wrinkled, weathered hands, the hermit seized David by the arm and led him inside, away from the cold. The entrance hall of the temple was barren. A row of torches lined the interior's gray stone walls, providing only just enough light to illuminate the path ahead of them. The old monk, still clutching tight to his new guest's arm, began to hobble down the dim corridor. Together, the two navigated through the darkness in silence until they reached a winding staircase plunging downward into the monastery's shadowy depths. With his free hand, the elderly man removed the last torch off the wall and gestured towards the stairway. What exactly is this place, David had asked the holy man as they began their descent. But the old monk said nothing. Instead, he directed his gaze ahead, his tired eyes focusing on nothing but the twisting steps in front of him. David felt alone as they snaked their way into the abyss like a tiny rock floating by itself in the vacuum of empty space, millions of miles removed from the closest celestial body. The pangs of disappointment he had been feeling just minutes earlier had begun to mutate into something else entirely. Paranoia, angst, and dread were now running rampant inside of his head, weaving themselves into an indescribable terror. Just when he thought the black void he had found himself in would drive him mad, a golden radiance caught David's eye. As the two proceeded closer to it, the source of the globe became clear, and David realized that his research had not been in vain. The base of the stairs came into sight. They appeared to open up into a small chamber with nothing but a large red door built into the wall. 
Beautiful, ornate symbols were inscribed into the face of it. Egyptian hieroglyphics, Sumerian designs, and a variety of other ancient multicultural characters lined the perimeter of the impressive structure. By the time they reached the bottom step, the old monk's torch was no longer necessary. A brilliant light was seeping out of every crack in the door, flooding the chamber in a golden hue. The old monk released David's arm and raised a wrinkled, weathered hand towards the shining spectacle before them. It was here that he uttered those words, those words that had hearkened back to a simpler time for the explorer. What you seek is just beyond this door, young man. Just beyond this door, David repeated. A rush of excitement swelled through him. He had found it. He had succeeded where Ponce de Leon and thousands of others like him had failed. He had located the secret to immortality. David reached for the handle of the door and with a quick tug jerked it open. A blinding light burst forth, enveloping the room, swallowing David and the elderly holy man. He fell to the floor, clutching at his chest. As the light intensified, so too did a searing pain he could feel in his heart. It was as though the entire core of his body had caught fire. The pain was unbearable, the most excruciating thing he had ever experienced in his life. Questions started whirling through his head. What is going on? How could it feel so horrible? He had never once read in all of his studies that the youth rejuvenation process would be a painful one. Something had to be wrong. Summoning every last ounce of strength, David crawled along the ground until he reached the door. He propped his shoulder up against it and drove his feet as hard as he could into the ground in an attempt to force it shut. With a thud, the door snapped closed, causing the blinding light to disappear behind it and leaving only a golden glow to wash over the room once more. Down on the floor again, David rubbed his eyes while he waited for the pain in his chest to subside. When his vision had regained focus, he looked up to scan his surroundings. What he saw ignited an inferno of terror that burned mercilessly inside of his body, spreading like wildfire. Looking down on him was a familiar face, one he had watched age in the mirror every single day of his life his face, and it was sporting a satisfied smirk. He was somehow staring up at himself as if another person was wearing his skin like a costume. Shock and confusion overran his mind. No longer able to gaze upon the imposter, he attempted to bury his face in his palms, but when he peered down, the sight sent pulse after pulse of panic through his very essence. His hands were no longer his, but he knew he recognized them. They were wrinkled and weathered, hands he had seen before. Hands that once belonged to an old monk with tired eyes. Special thanks to Vincent V. Kava for writing and allowing me to read his story, Immortal. You can find more of Vincent's work linked in the description below. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. And I'll see you next time. 
Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.